This morning's sermon, please turn to Luke chapter 2. We'll be looking at Luke chapter 2, verses 39 through 52. Before we begin, let's pray. Father, we're grateful and we're thankful for this, your word, for this morning, this day that we call the Lord's Day, because in it we seek you and look to you to fill us and to work in us and to strengthen us and to help us in every way. We know that apart from you we can do nothing, but we know that all things are possible for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, Father, we ask this morning that you would help in every way, bless, strengthen, work, and minister amongst us. Strengthen our, our weakness and help us. For we ask it in Christ. Amen. Do you ever feel like your faith is weak? Never. I'm glad. Sometimes we're doubting God. Sometimes we're not trusting Him and His promises like we ought to. And I'm almost certain, apart from Lane, that everybody here (laughs) has times of struggle. (laughs) But you know what we often have a hard time with? And that is admitting it. We have a hard time admitting it because we don't want to be thought of as weak. We don't want to be questioned in regard to our faith, whether we're a believer. We know it has all kinds of difficulties and problems with it. We know that we could be thought of as less than Christian even. But if, if truth be known, often we go through this life and it's not easy. We have things thrown at us and find our faith at times we're wavering. We're doubting God. His promises are too great for us, it seems as though. There they are, wanting to lay hold of them, but feeling like in our hearts there's doubt. But what's interesting is that when we're like this, when we're struggling, when we're doubting, instead of letting someone else know or having others walk with us or encourage us, what we tend to do is we often keep it to ourselves, hold it in. And sometimes we do that until it's almost too late. Because, you know, this is the very thing that the enemy loves for us to do. He loves for us to think that we're all alone. You ever had that thought? Like, you're the only one? You doubt that anyone else is is struggling the same way? You doubt that anyone else has these issues? I'm sure we all feel this way. This is number one strategy. Because when you're like that, you don't share it with anybody. You feel like you're on alone, all alone, and it causes you to isolate yourself. And the enemy has you right where he wants you. Because if you stay there, if you remain in that place, and you're not strengthened, you're not encouraged, you're not helped out of it, you become useless And in certain cases, the faith could even be shipwrecked. So all of us here this morning, we need our faith strengthened, don't we? 
Of course, that's why we're here. You're not here this morning because you're so mighty and strong and great and, and you come here with the tank full and everything's just wonderful. We come here as needy people. We need the Lord. We need him to strengthen us. We need him to revive us. We need him to encourage us. We need him to correct and teach and admonish us. We need him to feed us this table this morning. We need his people. I need you. You need me. We need one another. We need the Lord in every way. And no matter where we're at this morning, in this particular day, you know, being weak or strong or somewhere in the middle, we all need our faith continually strengthened. And that's really what we're going to see here this morning. In this particular passage in Luke chapter 2, we have the story of Jesus in his childhood age. But here, what's interesting here is we discover once again, this truth about Jesus being fully man, just like us, yet without sin, and fully God. And we're going to see, how, see the, this reality and this fact here, because when we look at Jesus and we see this, we see who he truly was, and we see him for all that he is. And when we understand that he is fully man, just like us, yet at the same time fully God, seeing him, understanding him for who he is, strengthens our faith. We come to the point where we realize, you know what? When I see Jesus in his fullness, when, I, when I'm refreshed in my understanding of who he is, that strengthens my faith in him. It builds me up. And that's my prayer this morning. My prayer is that this morning you will be strengthened, you'll be built up as you look at Jesus, who was truly fully God and fully man. We discover right away that Jesus was a growing boy, and yet he manifests the wisdom of God. This duality exists right here at the very beginning, starting at verse 39 through 40. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child, who's referring to Jesus, right? And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So what does it say about Jesus here? It says that he is a child, and he's growing. He grew grew and became strong. I don't know if the strong is, we don't know exactly if it's in reference to his biceps or just health. You know, he's just generally a strong, healthy guy. Now, but nonetheless, he's growing. And this is important because it refers to his... It manifests the fact that Jesus was indeed man. He was a a boy like every other boy in one sense. He's a boy, and he's growing. He outgrows his pants. He outgrows his shoes. He outgrows his shirts. And mama has troubles keeping up with him. That's typical, right? But why is he referring to this? Why is he even telling us these details? Because he wants us to understand that Jesus was just like you. He grew. He was a boy. We need to unmistakably realize that Jesus was a normal human. This is important. Just like you and me. He was born as a baby, grew up physically like the rest of us. And so that there can be no doubt. He tells us this, there can be no doubt that he actually, he was a physical person, flesh and blood person who existed in history. Jesus, this is historical fact. Jesus didn't write this. This is an account. He had a mom. He had a dad. He grew up. 
a fact in all of history. Jesus was a man. That's never in doubt. What's fascinating about the thing about our faith is that the person that we follow, this Jesus, actually existed in history, in time and in space. He was a boy. He had a history. He had a life. He had parents. He grew. And this, this is recorded and, and witnessed to and testified to, and nobody's in, nobody's in question of, of this. The debates can be about, well, was he fully, truly man? Or is he, was he, in fact, God? They debate this, and they debate, debate his nature. But the, the question of his existence and being a, an actual physical human isn't in question, for the most part. It's a very, very rare exception that every, any, almost nobody that you hear of, any scholar, would ever doubt that Jesus actually existed. Now, what's fascinating about this is that it grounds our faith in reality. We believe in a Jesus who was, a, who was an actual human, who actually existed, who actually lived. This isn't a myth. This isn't just somebody made this up. This is verifiable from all kinds of historical sources, that Jesus, the man, lived. The text also says something else about him. It says that he was filled with wisdom. Now, it's interesting they chose those words, filled with wisdom. Doesn't speak of him that he 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 was growing in wisdom. It does later, but it, here it actually uses the word "filled with wisdom," which means filled to the full. He he was full of wisdom. He was very wise. This particular aspect is speaking about. You're already seeing the reflection of this fact that Jesus wasn't just a man. Jesus was God. Wisdom is from God. It comes from above. And here it talks that Jesus almost has it in full measure. This would have been clearly testified to. The reason this comes up and he was full of wisdom. How did Luke find out about this? Well, he found out of it. This particular account had to have come from his parents. He was told and instructed as to what Jesus was like as a child. And here we come to find out he's 12 years old. He's a 12-year-old boy full of wisdom. That's pretty remarkable. Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived, apparently, according to Scripture. In 1 Kings 10.24, it says this about him. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his mind. God made him wise, wisest man on the planet, and people would seek him out just to hear his wisdom. Yet even Solomon, in all his wisdom, was not completely full of wisdom. He did not have infinite wisdom. His wisdom was, was limited. The only one who has full wisdom, is full of wisdom, is God himself. God is the epitome of wisdom. He has wisdom that nobody can fully search out. Jeremiah 10.12 says, He established the world by his wisdom. Now that statement is loaded. Because if we were to look at the world itself, we see some fascinating things about it. The whole created structure is astounding. If we look at the relationships that exist between all created things, we look at the structure, we look at the interdependence of all things created. And what do we see? Profound wisdom. Profound wisdom. And as much as we have done to search it out, and as many mysteries that have been slightly cracked, 
we haven't even scratched the surfaces. It is just profound wisdom when we think of the cosmos and how it holds together. People try to have theories. How does this ball float? How does it stay here? Why? We have theories. They've tried. But all, and that's, that's on a cosmic level. And then you look at a microscopic level, and we're just discovering within the last 50, 100 years that there's a whole universe within a cell. The wisdom... And then what holds this together and what holds that together and what holds this together? The whole thing is held together. We don't even, we're not even sure how it's held together. And yet there's, there's all the life being lived in between. And there's things that we're all dependent on. The th- there's things that we all share. The intricacies of creation. The wisdom that it would take to put this together, to sustain it. This is the wisdom of God. He created the cosmos, created the world. And yet Jesus at 12, it says, is full of wisdom. And this statement is true. And how is it true? It's true because he is God. It's, it's, it's already here at the age of 12 showing that he's not like any other child. But the text even gives us more to point towards this particular truth. In verse 46 and 7, we see that Jesus was a, he's this inquisitive boy with a tremendous understanding of God and the things of God. Look at verse 46. This is, this is actually a little bit down, down in the story when they lost Jesus. They don't know where he's at. They're searching for him, but he's at the temple. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Amazed. Twelve-year-old boy. And according to tradition, he's at the temple and in the temple courts. This is the main place for rabbinical instruction for young pupils or disciples. The rabbis would be there and the rabbis would instruct the kids in in the scriptures, in the Torah. And the main way of teaching for them was through asking of questions. So if you were to find out he wasn't no no rabbi was there lecturing but what often what they would do would they would ask you a question and the question would have a problem in it it would be difficult it, it wouldn't at this level we're not talking like the catechismal level where you're catechizing a kid and they say who is god and they repeat the you know the answer uh, what is the chief end of man these are big questions they're they're asking they're asking questions that have conundrums in them they're difficult they're actually, they test one's understanding of how this seems to contradict this and how does this work out and how do you figure that out. This is, so they're at the rabbinical level. The rabbis are teaching more complicated matters and they do it through this questioning process, which you know, at that time, even then, was probably known as the Socratic method of asking a question. Ask your disciple a question and see if they can answer it and try through questioning to bring them to the point where they are stuck. And they realize their weakness. They realize the complexities. They realize how much more they have to learn and study. This is probably what was going on. And yet, however, these rabbis are very gifted at this. These are like the top people in Israel. And in the basis of their knowledge of the scriptures, they're unparalleled. And it says that Jesus was asking them questions and coming up with answers that had the rabbis amazed. I'm sure he's answering all their tough ones. They're going, did you just hear what I heard? Because 
Does anybody know how, how old is that kid? Kind of like shocker. Jesus is the one. He's blowing their minds. What's going on here? He might have even asked some sort of question like this. I love later on in the Gospels, Jesus was skilled at asking tough questions, wasn't he? I mean, it was, it was pretty fascinating. He stumps the scribes and the Pharisees. This is one example, and I love it. He says uh, to the scribes and the Pharisees, how can the, the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Ooh. In the text, it says they were a little, oh, that was a good one. It's like that. I love, I love it because it, you could just see how they don't, they don't know. He knows they don't know. I, it would have been amazing to be on those, around those rabbis when he's 12. So how is it that uh, David, how is the Messiah David's son when David calls him his Lord? You know, 12. Of course he knows the answer. And yet Jesus here, he's demonstrating again this, this understanding, this wisdom that's, that's beyond. It's not normal. It's kind of like being in the presence. Folks, we are in the presence of a genius. Genius. Some people have had the privilege of being presence of geniuses and known that uh, they say things and they speak in such a way that you turn to the other person and go, <laughs> where do they get that from? You know, how is it they were able to know that? Child prodigies, right, that have this gift. And it, it's actually happened throughout history. There have been children who've been so impressive with their knowledge and understanding that they, they cause a little bit of wow I was doing a little research this week, and this one particular child caught my attention, William James Sidis. I don't know if you've heard of him or not, but uh, grew up in the 19, early 1900s. He was the son of a Harvard psychology professor. At six months, he knew his ABCs. At 18 months, he could read the New York Times. He was into advanced mathematics by three. By eight, he reportedly taught himself eight languages. Latin, Greek, French, Russian, German, Hebrew, Turkish, and Armenian. And invented another language which he called Vendergu. <laughs> At 11, he entered Harvard University. By 12, in early 1910, Citus's mastery of higher mathematics was such that he lectured the Harvard Mathematical Club on four-dimensional bodies. And he earned his Bachelor of Arts degree at the age of 16. He went on to be somewhat of a wacko, though. <laughs> he had troubles adjusting. Difficulty socially. Surprise? No. This is often the case. This kid was off the charts. He had some serious horsepower. The kind of kid where everybody's looking at one another going, did, did he just say what I thought he said? I mean, where is he getting this from? Yet this kid has nothing compared to Jesus. Nothing. Jesus is holding back. And here's the amazing thing. 
that often throughout history, when you have a, a, a genius, they're usually wonky because they're so off the charts, they have no idea how to relate to people because everybody else is here and they're here. And it's like two you know, different uh, planets. They just they don't get close to one another. But unlike Jesus, who loved, who got people, just as well as he got the Bible, who understood you better than you understand yourself, who saves the world, who gives his life for many. Do you know what's fascinating about Jesus? We can talk about his humility and love to the same degree that we could talk about his genius, his wisdom, and his understanding. The rabbis were amazed at his understanding. And yet, not too many years later, the world is amazed at his sacrifice and his love. He was the complete, the perfect human, the God-man. Jesus was approachable, he was enjoyable, he was kind, and yet he could stand up against the highest intellectuals and dumbfound them, confound them. He was a boy the world has never experienced and never ever again will experience. He was not wonky in any way. He was the most likable, delightful, joyful human on the planet. The best guy to be around. The best guy to have on your team. The best guy to have as a friend. He was the best. And on the other hand, he was the most intelligent, understanding, wise person that ever lived. He is the God-man. This perfect human. And the text goes on to show us that he wasn't just brilliant. He just wasn't this brilliant young man As we'll see here also, Jesus was this loving man, as I alluded to already. He loved his heavenly father, as we're going to see. And he loved his earthly parents perfectly. In verse 49, this whole particular, what happened here is that the family goes up to Jerusalem for Passover. So Jesus goes with them. And the parents and a whole entourage in Jews, uh, sorry, Jerusalem around pa- Passover is just bustling with people. All kinds of things going on. You know, it's a big party. It's, the bi- it's this big festival that has a lot of feasting involved in it. And during this time, it's a crazy time. Lots of people, lots going on, lots of family. It's all done and over with. And they start heading home. And they're about a day's journey out. And they start looking around, going through the people and thinking, uh, Joseph, I don't see Jesus anywhere. He's not to be found. And it says that it, it took three days. So three days later, they find him. And where do they find him? He's at the temple. He's at the temple and he's with the rabbis and having these wonderful discussions. And look at what, look at what they say to him in verse 49. I'm sorry, back up a bit. Verse 48. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother, this is why they were astonished, because he was all right. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? 
Why have you treated us so? Your father and I have been searching you in great distress. We're freaked out. We're about ready to throw up. We're so free. Three days. I mean, have you ever, if you've had children and you've ever, all of a sudden in a busy place, you're at a park, you're at the mall, you're somewhere, and you turn around, you're like, oh, oh, no. Have you ever had that feet? Have you had it come like just grab you and grab your throat and twist your gut in a knot, and all of a sudden bad thoughts come to your come to your head? If you've been there, you'll know what it's like to be freaked out. And for some odd reason, when we find them, we get angry at them. <laughs> you could have been at fault, one hundred percent. That doesn't matter. You're ticked. But at the same time, you're elated. You're so elated that you found them. But for some reason, all that anxiety, when it releases, it seems like it releases an anger. And this is what you see her saying. Uh, she says, why have you treated... It's like he did something wrong. Why have you treated us like this? Why did you do this to me? And, and he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that... But what, what that means is like, why did, why did you think I was lost somewhere? Why were you around looking for me? Said, Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? I mean, there should have been, it should, basically, that should have been an easy one. You should have just went, went to the temple and there you would find me, is, is kind of what he's saying. And so, but they didn't even, they didn't understand that. They didn't under, it says here in verse 50, and they did not understand the saying he spoke to them. They kind of confused him. Is he speaking in parables again? What's he saying? Because they didn't understand, they didn't speak of the temple like that. They didn't speak of it like your father's house. But to Jesus, it was his father's house. Once again, pointing to the fact that Jesus, even at 12, is demonstrating to them that his heavenly father is his father. He is God. He's the son of the living God. So as much as they knew, they, didn't, they still didn't get it. But here's what's fascinating about this what it tells us. We go on to see here that Jesus, in this particular story, Jesus did what he did. He has an absolute love for his heavenly father. But that doesn't mean in his love for his heavenly father that he treats his parents somehow like dirt at all. If you look down at verse 51, and so Jesus, he says, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. So Jesus wasn't rebellious at all. He wasn't desiring to be rebellious to them. He, was, he perfectly loved his heavenly father, and as we see this in this text, but he also, perf- in the text, and he also perfectly loves his earthly parents. And here, as, a, as the God-man, this, as a child under his parents, he submits himself to them. What a beautiful phrase. And was submissive to them. Mary, obviously, is the proudest mother in the universe. Because she often has this phrase of treasuring up in her heart all these things. <laughs> she, tre- she holds them in her heart and cherishes them and delights in them because her son is just this, the most amazing son you could ever imagine. She has a son who's perfectly submissive. Imagine that. He has a 4.0 at school. He's teaching classes. He helps around the house. He cleans up without being asked. He does everything with a smile on his face and a yes ma'am on his lips and a quick obedience in his step. It's kind of like, 
<laughs> your child on its best day, that day where you asked them to do something, yes, mommy, yes, daddy, they did it, did it cheerfully, quickly. You just die right there. That's awesome. That's just, that's great, isn't it? Mary got to live there, <laughs> cherishing up all these things in her heart. Thankfully, she had other children. <laughs> he would have been so mature, so responsible, and so good at everything he did that Joseph probably was tempted to put him in charge of the household. Could you just run things? It would have been the most amazing situation. But yet, you know what? All that goodness, Jesus didn't recognize and start strutting around like the big man on campus. Pretty smart, got it all going on. Got my parents in the palm of my hand. I'm, you know, everybody's loving me. Everything's good, isn't it? Growing in favor with God and man. I tell you what, any human who had this much going on is big man on campus strutting around feeling like he's the stuff. Not Jesus. He's, he's more humble than the humblest man has ever known. He's more kind, more gracious, more gentle, more submissive. It's really astounding. We look at this in this particular narrative of, of the historical documentation of Jesus and what he was like. This perfect man... Who is God? He's the most attractive human you could be around. If you found him, that's why he grows in favor. That's why they're amazed with him. That's why he causes Mary's heart to, to flutter just to think of him because he's so amazing. He's just that quality of a guy. He's just so kind, so good, so gracious, so tender, so humble, so submissive, so obedient, so joyful. And yet he's just got more horsepower than anybody else. You know what I, I'm absolutely convinced of is if we understood Jesus, if we understood what, he's, what he is like as fully God and fully man, uh, fully man, we would absolutely, if we meditated on this, fall in love with him just as Mary did. Like he, this, Jesus, is incredibly attractive. Because as much as you might want to be tempted to hate him, if you were a peer of his at the time, for all his, his stuff that he does good, he just does everything better than you. He loves you, serves you, and uses all his gifts for you like nobody else ever would. How could you not love him? He's like the best friend you could ever imagine. So he never uses his gifts, his power, his glory, and somehow use that over anyone any, at any time. He uses all this, this goodness, all this power, all this glory, all this wisdom, all this understanding, and he uses it to serve you. Could you imagine that? To bless you. The one who's always there for you. That friend, that you, if you could imagine who's there to encourage, who's there to help, who's there to, to bless, who's there to serve, and is, and is willing to sacrifice himself for your good. Never bragging, never talking about how much he knows, never showing off, always understating. They played around in the, on the streets, 
Their favorite game of whatever, soccer, I don't know. Whatever. Who knows what they played? They played, right? He's, not the, he's the kid who could dominate but never did. Always looking out for others. The perfect, most winsome fellow you knew. That's the Jesus we serve. It's very, it's very fascinating to think about him as a boy. To think about him as this young man. Because it, you know, it takes away a lot of times all the, the, I guess, the pretentious idea that we might have of him as a man. Because boys often as boys are boys. There's a humility about that. There's a, that's all, they're boys. And Jesus was one of them. But this outstanding boy. And he should be the kind of boy. It's more than a boy. He's your Lord and he's your king. The most amazing man who ever lived. And if you could think of his wisdom, understanding, his glory, his, his power on the one hand, it's off the charts. But on the other hand, think about his love, his patience, his kindness, his gentleness, his, his service, his, his tenderness, his ability, his compassion, and his willingness to serve and to help and to give. Nobody on the planet, nobody has a Lord and a King like we have. This Jesus is astounding. And this is why Jesus is the most powerful apologetic known to the world. People might often, you ever find people, they might want to debate about God, but just kind of bring Jesus in there. And let's talk about Jesus. And even the historical documents about him, he's a real man, he's a real figure in history, and you've got to deal with him. Deal with him because he is something else. He blows your mind. It might be easier to try to go talk about an abstraction and, 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 and philosophical idea of God. But let's deal with the flesh and blood Jesus, who we all know existed. And even people who are atheistic, some way or another they have to deal with Jesus. Because Jesus really existed. And I've... I've talked to people who don't believe in God, but you get talking about Jesus and something changes. They know he existed. And a lot of times, they actually like him and, and have a tendency to say, yeah, but then they start immediately want to start talking about all his followers and how much of an idiot goofball bunch they are. Well, granted. But let's get back to Jesus. Because when you look at him, and you understand him, and you get to know him for who he is, you end up falling in love with him. You end up becoming loyal to him. It's, it's astounding. The more you get to know him and truly understand him, who's the perfect and the most, he's the expressed image of God. You really get to understand what God is like. I haven't ever not read the Gospels and come away with a deeper love for Jesus. Just astounded by who he is and what he's done for us. And when you do that, it strengthens your faith, it builds you up, it encourages you, it, it grows you. You, you. Your love for him increases as you see his love for you. 
You're sitting here this morning and you want to have your faith strengthened. Understand and know who Jesus is. It's so important that we understand him both ways, that he's fully God and fully man. And the church understood this and fought for it. And in 451 AD, the definition of Chalcedon, they defined who, who Jesus was. And when we have a historical document passed down to the church, I don't want to close with this. And here, how he deals with these two, this, this, these two components of Jesus, the fact that Jesus was fully God and fully man, and how important this was for the church. And the church planted its flag and said, we must fight for this. Because this is at the center of what we believe. This is what it says. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. At once, complete in Godhead and complete in manhood. Truly God and truly man. Consisting also of a reasonable soul and body of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood, like us in all respects apart from sin. As regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet as regards his manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation of the Virgin Mary, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of the natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, Lord Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from earliest times spoke of Him. And our Lord Jesus Christ Himself taught us. And the creed of the fathers has handed down to us. End quote. That was formulated in 451 A.D., by the church that says this is what we must define and stake our claim upon. Who is Jesus? Jesus was fully God, fully man. And Jesus is our hope. He's our life. He's our strength. He is the foundation rock of our faith. And this is the Jesus we serve. This is the Jesus who calls you to himself this morning. This is the Jesus who says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is the Jesus who says, I have come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. I've come to give my life for you. I've come to serve. I've come to bless. I've come to give. I come to fill. I come to save. I come to deliver. I'm here for you. Draw near to him and cling to him because he is good. Amen. Father, we're so thankful for Jesus. Thankful that he's called us to himself, saved us, delivered us, sacrificed for us. We know that 
Father, there's no other way we could have a Savior like him unless he be perfectly man as our representative, and at the same time perfectly God, in order to withstand your judgment and overcome the wrath and deliver us and save us and draw us near to yourself. Only Jesus could save. Only Jesus could represent. Only Jesus could withstand. And only Jesus can give us the life that is in you. And for this, we praise you and give you thanks. Amen.